Thank you for joining us for this episode. Today, we are going to be discussing dry eye and MGD treatments with Walt Whitley on the OI show. I'm Dr. Mila Brujic, and I'm joined with my co-host, Dr. Dave Kading, and we're going to be talking to Dr. Whitley about some uh, new and contemporary treatments here. So, Walt, um, let's jump right into it. You know, there's so many things that are available right now to treat MGD. How can the clinician best deploy some more traditional MGD or dry eye treatments, whether they're topical, like, for example, a tear replacement, home treatments, things like lid scrubs, and in-office procedures, things like thermal pulsation? That's a great question. Thanks for having me here. Uh, whenever it comes to the various uh, dry eye treatments, I think the, the biggest thing is having that strong recommendation, strong treatment coming from the provider. Uh, we do also have to make sure we're diagnosing those patients, making sure we're looking at the lids, making sure we're expressing the glands. Maybe we all don't have imaging of the meibomian glands, but it's something that we can still use with our transilluminator. So the diagnosis is going to be key. But then when it comes to treatment is making that firm recommendation. This is your condition. This is why you have it. And this is what we're going to need to do about it. And that's where the, the patient's going to come in. And not just from us, but from our staff as well. Uh, talking about the 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 emphasis of education on their condition, whether it's going to be whether it's going to be uh, the lid scrubs and prescribe a therapy. Don't do the grab bag approach when it comes to artificial tears. Prescribe one that you feel is best. Typically for me, it's going to be preservative free. It's going to be lipid based, and when we know that majority of dry eye has an evaporative component, uh, that's where I always favor the lipid based uh, tears as well. Uh, we know about the heat mask and prescribe a mask and, and make that firm recommendation because if not, yeah, patients have no idea. They're going to get a bag of rice or a sock or whatever it may be, uh, but tell them why they need to do that heat treatment. And, you know, I can keep going, but I'll let you. You know, you, you bring up a really interesting point. A couple of years ago, Mila and I were doing a dry eye workshop in optometry schools and they were rotating through and Mila kept asking, what is your number one dry eye treatment? And at one of these optometry schools, their answer just kept being a sock with a bag of rice, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think we've we've gone beyond that and we've really, really helped uh, educate at the schools and clinicians hopefully are beyond that. But, you know, one of the concerns that everybody has about these things is the safety and is there studies on efficacy? So how does that really fit in with what you're recommending and thinking about with patients? Well, if you're looking at studies going back, evaporative dry eye or just dry eye in general, 86% does have an evaporative component, whether it's mainly evaporative dry eye or if it's mixed mechanism dry eye. As we get into heat, uh, it's important uh, studies have shown that you need at least 104 degrees for at least four minutes to have any impact on the meibomian glands. And so uh, that's where looking at the various uh, masks that are available, looking at some of the studies saying, hey, this is why I'm recommending this treatment. When we look at the preservative uh, free tiers, and there's many on the market, uh, if patients are using drops more than twice a day, we wanna make sure that uh, that it is, does not have BAK. We know that preservatives can, uh, can, uh, can be a detriment to the ocular surface, but looking at how long the, the, the drops last. I mean, it's, it's paleo relief. I'm not saying that a lubricating drop is gonna be the only thing the patient needs, but for mild cases, that might be enough. But many of our patients, we've waited too long to diagnose and treat. That's where they need more of the moderate to severe therapy. 
to at least provide palliative relief in between the various uh, treatments that they may be using. Hey, Walt, um, specifically with device-based treatments, though, you know, what are some of the balance for us, the safety and efficacy of these in-office devices and some of the evidence that's available to support that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, you know, there's many different uh, devices out there. I think the main thing is to do something. Yes, we have our home-based treatment, but we, there are also great MGD treatments. Whether you have it, and we know a lot of our colleagues do have these technologies, some of them may not, but that's where optometric co-management and referring to one of our colleagues, they do the treatment, and when the treatment's done, they send it back to the patient. As looking at specific therapies, we do have intelligent heat, whether it's going to be uh, through t- through tear care, where we're going to put heat on the outside of the eye for about 15 minutes, and then we're going to do manual expression afterwards. And in their pivotal study, they were looking at, uh, it was a comparison against uh, lipoflow or, or vector uh, thermal pulsation. And they were looking at the, the tear foam breakup time as well as the meibomian gland secretions. And they were found to be non-inferior, which means essentially it, 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 the outcomes were, were very similar through that. If we look at the ILUX, uh, the handheld uh, thermal pulsation, that was also compared to lipoflow. And lipoflow has always been the gold standard uh, because it was the first market. And you're going to find as well when it comes to the symptom scores as well as the uh, as the meibomian gland secretions, that does show non-inferiority as well. There's safety data available. I mean, you two have had these technologies. I've had these technologies for the last decade. I mean, I can make that strong recommendation to the patient that this is a very safe and efficacious treatment for patients. When it comes to the longest uh, data, that's going to be the Griner data look, looking at three years down the road, where roughly over 80% of patients were still having uh, improvement in the meibomian gland secretion scores at uh, three years down the road. So I make strong recommendations and I let the patient know this is your condition, this is what we're going to do, and this is why you need to do it. Dave, Walt, go ahead, Mila. Well, I was just going to say, Dave, there's new stuff that's coming out on the pipe. What What do you think about that, and how's that going to change things? And Walt, maybe you can comment on that. So, yeah, go ahead. there's some real there's some real exciting things coming out on the market. You know, I think the real key is, and 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 Lippy Flow taught us this because they were the first to really say, "Hey, there's a difference between warm compresses, particularly." Uh, you know, symptoms and tear breakup time were about the same, but really the big key was the meibomian gland secretions were better. And so those are the really important things. Years ago, I said, you know, any treatment that improves the number of meibomian glands yielding liquid secretions, which is MGYLS, that's, that's a really key component. Um, and so there's some real cool stuff coming out on the market, but clinicians have to go back to those studies to see that MGYLS is improving, not just symptoms, right? Yeah, not everybody's symptomatic, right? We have yeah. a lot of patients that have lost over 75% of their glands. So what are we going to do? And we have yeah. to do something. That's where the doctor's firm recommendation comes into play. Well, I want to talk a little bit about some of the emerging therapies that are coming out. You know, we got the recently approved Novo3 with, uh, and and then we got Demodex blepharitis with TPO3, and that's currently under FDA approval as, as of the time of us recording. How is that going to be, you know, changing some of the management that you and, and I, how do you foresee that really shifting some things for us? Uh, it's going to be exciting. It's such an exciting space. You just named two. Cyclosol was also recently uh, approved. Yeah, yep, yep. For this. And so 
Uh, but when we're looking at dry eye, and we've learned this from the TFOS news too, that 80% of patients have both an evaporative component and an aqueous deficient dry eye. We do know that inflammation is in the definition of dry disease, along with neurosensory abnormalities, uh, loss of homeostasis, hyperosmolarity. Osmolarity, yep, yep. We, we can keep going on that. But when we look at, you know, where are some of the shortcomings, what is the targeted therapy for the meibomian glands if 86% of dry eye has an evaporative component? Yes, we just talked about some of the treatments. I didn't even talk about IPL or low-level light therapy, which are great treatments uh, as well. And But with these emerging treatments, Novo3, the name is uh, the brand name is going to be called Mybo. Looking at those studies, there were 57-day studies. There were over 1,200 patients within this in these studies. The Gobi and the Mojave trial, so they both have roughly about 650 or around-ish uh, patients in both. Uh, but what they found is they're looking at the eye dryness score, looking at the visual analog scale, as well as the total corneal fluorescein staining. So both a sign and a symptom. And it was both were found to be statistically significant at day 57. If we break down that, down that data even more, it goes down at day 15. It found statistical significance in both the eye dryness score as well as the, uh, as well as the total corneal staining. So what is it? This is a first-in-class drug, and this is a water-free, preserver-free uh, medication where essentially it is going to target the evaporation, and it, it and it's even has uh, has the evaporative component within the, the package insert. And so it provides a monolayer on the aqueous li liquid or the air-liquid uh, interface, and so it is expected to decrease the evaporation on the eye. And so signs, symptoms, we have something that can target it. Uh, it, so it's going to essentially help uh, coat the ocular surface or the lipid layer. But then, you know, what does it do to my bombing glands to help address the evaporative component? And so I'm excited to use it. I had a patient today that, you know, they are not able to, to, to pay for financially for some of these other uh, uh, cash-based treatments. But his issue was blurred fluctuating vision. He had meibomian gland dysfunction. And so I said, hey, this was just approved. And, you know, I'm going to watch it closely. When it's available, I'm going to put you on it. That's just one of our patients. You know, we still have patients that have the various treatments. And yes, they're doing better, but this is a chronic condition. So I think this is going to be complementary to what we're doing as well. And so I'm excited to find what niche is going to play, but I think it's going to have a huge role within our dry eye patients. Tell us a little bit about that too, and about some of the clinical trial data around that, where you think it's going to come in. Yeah, that's another exciting one. Um, you know, do you all have blepharitis? Is no. it, you know, I was part of a study and, uh, and essentially looking at 180 uh, consecutive patients. And there were over six uh, centers, both ODs and MDs. And what we found through all of our data, 58% of patients had Demodex blepharitis, whether it's clinically or meaningly, uh, meaning, uh, significant. Um, you know, not every patient's going to be complaining about it. But we do know that Demodex blepharitis, you know, what uh, we see the cholerates, pathognomonic. If you see a cholerate on the, on the base of the lash, that patient has Demodex blepharitis. And there's been studies by Gal. And I'm not going to go into the studies, but essentially, if you see a cholerate, they do have Demodex blepharitis. And so this drug, the Padufa date is going to be this August. Uh, so, but the way the FDA is going, I mean, we've been seeing quite a few approvals, uh, but essentially it's taking the veterinary approach and taking topical lotolaner and it's twice a day. 
and twice a day for about six weeks. And in the clinical uh, studies, they were looking at cholerate cure. So the patients in the studies had to have over, over 10 cholerets, but afterwards, the primary outcome was who had statistically significant cholerate cure, which was less than two uh, cholerets. And what they found, it was statistically significant for those patients. They also looked at mite eradication, which at its endpoints, as well as lid erythema, which is the redness that patients care about. And so compared to placebo, this was statistically significant and something that's uh, very excited about because you know looking at some of the uh, some of the, er, the the some of the the data and knowing some of the, the studies and seeing some photos, this is without lid scrubs. And so whether yeah. they had primary demodex blepharitis, whether they had seborrheic, whether they had staph, essentially you put this drop in twice a day, those leads look very clear afterwards. And so it's very exciting to see uh, for our patients. And so or the patients in the study. So, you know, we may have uh, we may have an option here in the near future. And this is also going to be going back to ocular surface, which we all love. Yeah, we can put drops, we can do the treatments. But if we're not looking at those lashes, we're not fully addressing the ocular surface. Yeah. You know, it, it, some of the sometimes when when we look at some of these studies of these drugs over the years that have been approved, it's kind of like, well, yeah, it's statistically significant. But I mean, was it a big difference? And the data that I've seen from TPO3, it's uh, you know, it looks like it's going to be pretty clinically significant for our patients as well. Now, well, to, to kind of close us out, I want to talk about some myths and misperceptions that we're seeing in the MGD in the dry eye space. And, and here's one that I, that I'm going to have to say is I think this myth of warm compresses are as good as in-home treatments uh, for helping to clear glands is one that we just have not seen come true. You know, the studies have proven that time and time again, and, and docs think, well, if I'm treating MGD, I'm getting those glands open with warm compresses. And that's a myth that just drives me nuts. Like we don't have any data in, in the studies to prove that. Um, what are some myths and misperceptions? We have one. Actually, I have my own myth I was going to bring up, but to, to address yours, and you know, I you spoke about this before at a meeting, uh, we were talking about the, the CORB bundle method. And so if you're going to do warm compresses, look up the CORB bundle method and you need at least what a dozen wash wash rags, and you got a bowl. You need five. I described it to a patient this morning. Oh, that's five too. <laughs> so you need five wash rags, minus a twelve. But either way, so you're gonna put that put it on the eyes once it gets cool. Then you take the next one out. But you have to do it that way, and that was found to be clinically significant and meaningful. But if you're just taking a warm washcloth, or or you know, most people aren't even doing it. Uh, yeah. It was shown to be clinically significant and meaningful in keeping the eyelid hot enough, yes. but it didn't say anything about getting the glands to flow better, right? So sure. that that's one of our problems with warm compresses. They don't stay hot long enough, but then even so to get it open, right? And then that's our big thing is meibomian gland dysfunction becomes functional when the oil glands are flowing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm with you. That's what we have to do for own home treatment and look for, but, um, sorry, go ahead. No. And, and so they have to do it that way, but then they have to do it consistently and, yeah. you're, and still not evacuating it. So that, I mean, the best way to describe that is flossing, which nobody does anyway. And that's what the data shows that what J and J did a study, 87% of patients floss 
infrequently or not at all. And that's something we know we're supposed to do. And so, I mean, there's plenty of data and you just go to your reps, talk to your colleagues. When it comes to any of the MGD procedures, you'll see the science, the data speak for itself and something that we need to recommend and, and, and bring into the clinics or co-manage with some of our colleagues. You know, one of the other myths that we've all talked about uh, at many of our, our lectures is going to be, you know, where are those dry patients or, you know, they're not impacting, uh, whether it's the contact lenses and you all do plenty of contact lenses, whether it's going to be the glaucoma patient. I mean, I tell people, if you have glaucoma and you got dry eye, if you have a contact lens practice, you better be looking for the, the dry eye patients and the evaporative dry eye patients because that does lead to decreased uh, wearing time, leads to contact lens dropouts. And we can go on and on uh, uh, on, on various uh, various uh, how ways people use their eyes in various clinics, but it is ubiquitous. Everyone has dry until proven otherwise. And we know that evaporation, evaporative dry eye plays a huge role. Dave, this was this was fun interviewing a guy with this much knowledge. <laughs> we learned not only things about his dental habits, but we also learned a lot about MGD and dry eye. And while for that, we thank you. And we thank you all for joining us on this episode of the Optometric Insights Show. Uh-huh.